I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Before we start today's show, I just wanted to take a moment to say to everyone in Ukraine, your fear, your sacrifices, and your pain, it's being felt here in the States and across the globe. But so is your heart, your incredible courage, grit, and your belief and fight for democracy, for freedom, and your resolve to stand against tyranny and aggression is truly inspiring. You remind us all what's worth fighting for. We support you and we're praying for peace. And above all, we're praying for you and your family's well-being and safety. Let's start the show. I feel like you should just be on tour telling stories all day. (laughs) (laughs) Then I wouldn't get the right. Hey everyone, I'm Evelyn, your host, and this is Reppin. Thank you to the listeners for choosing to spend your time with me here. This show is made for you, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast and that you're connecting with me, my guests, the conversations and experiences shared, because we all have more in common than we think, and we have so much we can learn from each other and so much good we can do together. Today, my guest has had numerous conversations with Dennis Rader, the BTK serial killer. Yeah, I'm not talking about a TV show, and I'm not talking about a character. This is real life. This is legit. She's had lengthy conversations with him while working on a book called Confessions of a Serial Killer, the untold story of Dennis Rader, the BTK killer. She also teaches forensic psychology at DeSales University, where she is the assistant provost. 
She is an expert on extreme offenders, serial killers. She's appeared on more than 200 crime documentaries and magazine shows. She's the executive producer of Murder House Flip, and she's consulted for CSI, Bones, and The Alienist. She's the author of more than 1,500 articles and 68 books, including How to Catch a Killer, The Psychology of Death Investigations. All of her skills and expertise have helped authorities in gaining insight to understanding and catching those who would commit heinous crimes. She studies them, but who is she? My guest today is world-class forensic psychologist, Dr. Katherine Ramsland. Dr. Ramsland, I am so happy you're here. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I know you are a rock star in your field. Can you tell audiences a little bit about what you do just to give them a, a formal introduction? Okay. I'm a professor of forensic psychology. I teach at the undergraduate and graduate levels. I have specialized classes in death investigation and extreme offenders, which covers mass murderers and serial killers. And also I've written or I've published, it's different from, from writing, uh, published 68 books so far with I think four more at least coming. Awesome. And I do trainings for police officers and attorneys and anyone interested in extreme offenders. I've recently been working on a four-part documentary mm-hmm. on the book that I wrote with the BTK serial killer, Dennis Rader. We worked for five years on his criminal autobiography. That was probably the kind of the capstone of all that I have been doing the past 25 years in the world of serial murder. I got my start writing for the Crime Library, which was Court TV's website. I wrote about 225 long, long cases. I think there were about 10,000 words apiece on all kinds of individuals, serial killers, and also forensic science and psychology. So a lot of my books are about all of that. That's not the only things that I write about. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the other things that you write about, because you also cover a lot of the supernatural. You know, tell us a little bit more about that, too, because you really have such an expansive background in things that I think layman's people don't have any inkling of what that's like. There's a genuine curiosity of it. But tell us a little bit more about sort of the other things you cover other than being an expert in serial killers. Well, I started out with a a book on Kierkegaard, which was a philosopher I studied for my PhD. I have um, five graduate degrees, actually. I just finished one, an MFA in creative writing. I'm a lifelong student, no doubt about it. I've had wonderful opportunities to keep going, so I've kept going. So my first book was on Kierkegaard, and I I hated academic writing so much, I, I <laughs> swore I'd never write another book. Okay. So obviously, something happened between book number one and book number two and three, which was um, really writing commercially and, and learning, and that was a biography of Anne Rice that I just came up with and wanted to do, and she was she was willing to do it with me. And I loved writing so much, I thought there's nothing else I'd rather do. So big difference. And although I have written other academic books, I don't enjoy the process unless I can do something creative with it mm. or explore something I don't know. So for me, writing is all about learning. 
everything I do is about learning. Which you love. Yeah, which I love. So I'm driven by curiosity. And I've had incredible opportunities to explore all kinds of things like the vampire subculture. I went out for with ghost hunting groups for a year, stayed in all kinds of haunted places and wrote about all of that. I went into the world of funeral directors and met all kinds of characters in that world. So I think for me, it's really about learning a whole new thing, a new subject area, meeting unusual and interesting and often and eccentric people that are great characters and and being allowed into their worlds. Often um, people who've read my books will let me in because they see that I respect right. differences in people and actually prefer them. I like to learn something about how did a person go from A to you know where they are now. What decisions did they make? Why did they make those decisions? I'm just really curious. Right. I'm a listener. For a while, I was a therapist. I hated that. <laughs> okay. and, uh, and also, I was uh, in research psychology. I hated that, too. Okay. So the, you know, the one thing about life, I think, is you're constantly reframing yourself and, and looking for new ways to stretch and understand the world. So I'm not afraid to stop and start over, and I've done that on a number of of occasions. I used to teach philosophy. I taught that for 15 years and then just quit. Did you hate that too? I didn't hate it. I just was done with it. <laughs> okay. Got it. It ran its course. Okay. I, I was it. done got with it. it and I wanted to do something new. And I think at the time I had gone through a divorce and which gave me complete freedom um, and freedom from judgment to do what I wanted to do. So I Traveled more and went back to school, got my master's in forensic psychology, which I had no idea would change my life so completely, but it did. Right. And from there, I launched into all the forensics. I mean, that's quite a background. I think the thing that really thread through for me as you're laying this out is your genuine, voracious appetite to learn and to be curious. Now, there's a lot to learn and to be curious about. So, Granted, you didn't really expect to go into the forensic world or to be the rock star expert in serial killers. What made you go, okay, this is what I'm locked into or the supernatural? And, you know, when I first approached you for this podcast, I'm so fascinated by everything that you're doing because for me, and, I, and I've said this to you, that you're on the front lines truly of, you know, learning about things that people are curious about, but are also, frankly, scared shitless <laughs> to face. You're learning it and then turning it into tools that help society, that help the detectives. Because there's a lot of things in the world to be curious about. Um, what hooked you and what didn't deter you? Because this is such real life darkness. What was it about this that didn't make you turn away, but lean into it? I don't think of darkness as evil. I think darkness encompasses a lot. And I would say darkness hooks me every time, which is not necessarily about evil. I don't really even use the word evil very often because I find it to be um, in a religious context, and most people have these 
connotations for what that means. So it's difficult to talk about it without falling into these these kind of religious ideas and formulas. Fair. So that putting that aside, what has always hooked me is darkness. And I will say that, that that's my mother's complete fault because when <laughs> I was a kid, she would put ghost stories in my hands. I mean, those are the library books we got out at when we first ah. started to read. And darkness to me means unknown stuff that I can explore that a lot of people don't want to be in there with me. So it's not a crowded field. Now it's a crowded field. But when right. I first started, it wasn't. And even though I say it's a crowded field now, it's still very surfacey quite a bit when you when you hear a lot of the the social media and the and people putting out or plagiarizing each other <laughs> essentially. It, it's all the same stuff over and over and over. And right. you're not going very deep. And that partly could be because people don't have tools to go deep. When I did this thing with Dennis Rader, for example, I was ready. I had already done a book looking back over a century of mental health experts who had taken long periods of time to really understand an extreme offender. And so I worked on each of those cases. So then I had role models when the opportunity came along to work with Dennis Rader. So I had tools to guide him toward uh, using his account of himself to help us learn about him because but there's a lots of serial killer blathering out there that doesn't amount to much right it's just blah 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 here's what i did right and i i didn't want to do a book like that i wanted to do something that was in fact going to dive deep and and be helpful for criminology forensic psychology and law enforcement yeah and I, I think it has been. I've certainly had a lot of comments from that. I've done some trainings with it. So I achieved my goal, but it took, it took a long time. That being said, of course, there were aspects of his story that were, you know, pretty hard to take. Yeah. When he targets a family, when he kills an 11-year-old by hanging her, when he, you know, just enters a home with three kids and kills their mother in front of them. His thoughts about that, his predatory activities to to undertake that, while at the same time living this completely contradictory life, uh, being a church going, not just church going, president of his church congregation, so very you know ritualized, passing himself off as a good husband, good father, raising two kids, keeping a responsible job. Some people are going to say evil. And I'm going to say, you know, he's also a human being. And from where does this come? How do we try to understand his developmental trajectory Mm -hmm. so that we can compare it to the developmental trajectory of others similar to him and start to look for the triggers and the ways that, that people like this can be caught young and treated and, you know, re-channeled towards something pro-social and away from the narcissism of of having to indulge their sexual fantasies, for example. And it's very intensive kind of work. It's I, I do it all the time, every day. It's it's very involving. But I think I've made some headway and I think I've made some contributions to this to this um, arena educationally. Without question. And I hope to continue to do so. I'm just, just got so many questions for you. I want to just like hang out with you for a week in a cabin somewhere. <laughs> you know, you've worked extensively with one of America's most notorious serial killers and you 
are in the front seat, privy to his details and stories. It is unfiltered. You're getting it full blast, Dr. Ramsland. Can you talk about that first connection that you guys made? What was your reaction? And like, what were you thinking? Because I appreciate so much your curiosity and voracious appetite to learn. But this is so dark and this is so real and it's so scary. Did you see this more as a huge opportunity? Like what was that first moment when you made that connection with Dennis Rader? What was going on with you? Well, first of all, you have to remember I've been doing this for you know over two decades before I right. even met him. I'd worked with FBI profilers. I'd seen their cases. I've seen all kinds of crime scene photos. Right. I've been out with detectives. Um, I've written my own death investigation book. Um, so the so it's not like I kind of came on this fresh and, right. you know, the shock was just was just unbelievable. You had the history. and He's not even the worst by any means of the serial killers I've studied, not by far. He's not a torturer, despite it, the name he gave himself. He didn't cannibalize victims. He didn't dismember them. And so I think um, on a scale, it wasn't hard to take in terms of in the context of everything I've already been immersed in. So being prepared and also having background, uh, you know, in psychology. I'm a research psychologist. I have several master's degrees in it. My PhD is philosophy of psychology. I've been immersed in psychology for a long time and certainly know how to buffer myself. And I'd also have to say one of the best things I, I have are two really good friends who can bear the darkness with me. Oh, good. When, when something does feel like it's you know, like he's said something a little too icky. I can just call them and they share the burden, basically. And, right. You know, they can help me make it a little lighter. Um, and I, I would always recommend that to anybody. But so for how this all began, it was really an unusual opportunity. And I, yes, I did see it as a, a significant opportunity for the kinds of work I do. Can you share one story throughout your experiences? where you saw something or were a part of some investigation where it was very difficult for you to process and you had to learn how to buffer the world you were studying and contributing to, to help detectives, but to you personally. Can you tell me one experience that you remember right now, uh, what the situation was and what was difficult about it and how you learned to protect yourself, I guess, and not be disheartened or just find yourself wondering, like, what are people doing to each other? Well, I mean, I see that stuff every day. Yeah. Uh, I'm asking you to help me. Yeah. Okay. I think, that so <laughs> I think the worst stuff for me is cruelty, uh, you know, outright cruelty to people that and it doesn't have to be about murderers. It can be, you know, something like, you know, we just saw three white guys running down a black guy and, you know, that, that kind of thing. Or, or, or cruelty to animals, even. I mean, when I see that, I think that's really hard to bear. When I see people in the corporate world, for example, having a complete indifference to the cruelty they're inflicting with their products, on the world and on people and and not caring because they're making money and that's all that matters. So that kind of stuff is is hard to bear. 
just as hard as listening to extreme offenders talk about the kind of cruelty they, they inflict on their victims. I think how somebody got that twisted is always a curious question. You know, and you can ask that about politicians, too. There's a lot of twisted folks who are our leaders, and we have to bear the consequences of their decisions. So in that case, because there's a lot of that out in the world, you have to find a way to make your peace with it, that you're not going to cure it. Um, It's going to always be there. There will always be greedy, narcissistic, cruel people. And even cruel people don't realize they're being cruel. They just, as part of the extension of of who they are, just what they are. So you have to find a place for yourself that's your solace. I write fiction. I have constant stories going on in my head. I try to be kind to people as much as I can, but I also take a lot of time in solitude away from people. I don't necessarily leave behind this world because my reading usually involves crime of some kind. I don't read romances or watch romantic (laughs) movies or any of that kind of thing. I know The Bachelor for you. (laughs) None of that. I I can't tolerate wasting my time. I just, I can't tolerate that because, and I guess because I've, I've certainly had some experiences in my life where I've had to face death. And I taught existential philosophy. So that's always about making your life meaningful in the face of the fact life is short. So I can't tolerate wasting my time. So I don't spend a lot of time in small talk and whatnot. I look for people in my life who can have some depth. I think that's important. And I think you also have to create your own world within yourself where you're satisfied with the choices you're making you're satisfied with the person you're becoming. If you're not, then you will have the courage to make changes, step away from whatever you've been invested in that isn't good for you and and move into something that will be good for you. And that does take courage. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. 
shopify.com slash realm. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. I know that there are things like the golden handcuffs. People can't leave jobs because they're afraid of losing income or something. And But I still think you have to make decisions about the fact that life is short and you don't want to get to the end or near the end think, thinking, oh, I, I wish I would have done it differently. Do it differently now. That's probably the best advice I can give is try to understand who you want to be and set your goals to achieve it. That's amazing. I do echo your thoughts about being a student and always growing because in every stage of your life, you continue. I mean, the hope is to grow and to develop and to be better. And with that, you always have to reframe your life, your goals, your values, and to be and strive to be the person that you want to be. So when you first started and this this voracious curiosity that you have, which I love, you applied it to something that interested you, that made you want to learn more, but also contributed to society. Can you tell me about one story or one moment that you remember having within yourself where you learned something about something you were doing that you still apply today, either professionally or personally, Dr. Ramsland? <laughs> You ask huge questions. <laughs> well, you said you wanted something substantive. I know, I did, didn't I? Yes. Um, so you got it, my friend. It really goes back to, it, and similarly, when I left high school, five days out of high school, I hitchhiked across the country. I never wanted to go back to school again the rest of my life. Now, look, look, <laughs> look, now I have five graduate degrees. What changed? Well, what changed was genuine learning, the excitement of it, how it's really the, my life force in a way it was not in high school. I hated high school. And I really was three years between high school and college, which most people would never dare to do just in case you never went back. But I happened to hitchhike into Flagstaff, Arizona to visit some friends. Oh, and this is after the summer I rode a motorcycle across the country when I was 19. Dr. Ramsden. So you see, but, and, and that's the thing. It's about courage and about following your curiosity. I was not going to just stay in my hometown and find a job somewhere. And I was going to see things. I was going to explore and just get on the road and find out what people are like. And certainly I took risk and certainly I was in danger. 
more danger than I thought. But I was a kid, so I was a teenager. Teenagers never think they're in danger, right? It worked out. Right. I had amazing experiences. For example, I rode in this amazing thunderstorm all night long across the entire state of South Dakota. Lightning of every color. It was so astonishing. Most people would just find shelter, right? Yeah. And I'm on a motorcycle. I'm not in a car. Uh, But it was such an amazingly awesome, life-enhancing experience. I stayed out there and endured the storm so I could see with clear eyes everything around me, even though lightning could have hit me. I was in flat area, could have hit me. But I ended that night by circling around up to this hill that had a sign that said, this is where Lewis and Clark first saw the Badlands. Like, whoa. (laughs) You know, wow. (laughs) And then crossed into Wyoming, found a a farmer who let me put my little camping tent on his land. He woke me up during the night and he had horses saddled and said, I think you're going to want to see this. We rode up to see sunrise at Devil's Tower. So you know what? I had amazing experiences, which it could have all have ended up with me murdered, but yeah. I wasn't. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> oh my God. I'm like not a parent and I'm already like worried for your safety at 19. What did you I always say? wondered why she <laughs> I did ask her once, why did you let me go? And she said, would it have mattered if I tried to stop you? And I said, no. She said, then why should I have tried? That's hilarious. She understood right from the start, because I was a little kid who wandered everywhere around the neighborhoods and all all kinds of places. So she understood very early in my life, I was not going to be contained. Perhaps my courage is really just stupidity. That could very well be. (laughs) I don't think so. I don't think so. It has worked out amazingly. Thank God. Many people have been really good about, like I rode into this one town and I needed something done on the bike. And I didn't know anything about motorcycles. I just bought it and got on. Oh, you you just bought a motorcycle and got on it? And got on. And uh, two days later, I was on the road. (laughs) Holy shit. I stopped because something was wrong with, I think, the camshaft or something. And this little shop, the wife took me in and gave me breakfast and coffee and the Husband fixed the bike for nothing for free. Oh my God. Because I was this 19 year old girl, and you know, you just don't see that <laughs> riding around on a motorcycle <laughs> across the country. So it's fearless. But see, I think those early experiences really supported my ability to just um, try new things to go find new things, to go travel, to go stay overnight in haunted houses, to go meet unusual people, to immerse in the vampire subculture. I mean, those early experiences were so rewarding. And then when I finally did get to college, which was just simply by accident, I went to, you know, stay with some friends for the summer and I took a class in philosophy because I I wanted something to do. And, you know, and they were students. So I thought, okay, I'll I'll take a class while I'm here. And I, I loved it. I loved it. It changed everything. What was the difference between hating and saying, I'm never going back to school and that's now going to be my life learning is learning um, was really the experience of expansion 
of enrichment and expansion derived from not not just because I had a particularly good teacher, but because I understood learning to be a partnership of a good teacher with a student willing to be diligent and to explore. That's amazing. All right. You ready for another big question, Dr. Ramslin? Yep. You have gone to haunted houses. Let me ask you, real or not? Oh, I don't know. I keep looking. I'm a ghost repellent. Why do you say that? Do they just see you coming and like just not show up? Because every time I go to a haunted house, nothing happens. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, let me just say this. I would never walk into a haunted house now without you. So I'm. <laughs> but you've also investigated vampires, mass murders, all these things and ghosts. No, I've investigated people who say they're vampires. That's a, There's a difference. Oh, right. Okay. With the work that you've been doing, when did you realize like, all of this incredible curiosity and your it's interesting because I love that you're creative and you have combined it with your love for learning. The tools that you have given detectives and like, what was the, what was the moment that you realized like what you're doing is really making a difference in sort of helping to understand human behavior and to protect like the rest of us. Do you remember what it was? I never thought about that. Oh, really? <laughs> I follow my curiosity and if it helps, great. You know? But you've learned so much about like people and you've helped so many cases and you know, detectives. But I did tell you I didn't like being a therapist. I did not like sitting and listening to people come in and to say the same stuff week after week. So clearly I didn't have that drive. And when I studied all these offenders, I wasn't doing it to try to help people. That was never my motivation. I was doing it because I was curious. How do they get to be what they are? What do they think of their own lives? What, what's the quality of their own experience? I can go into their dark minds. So I do. Uh, and right. it comes out with information that can be helpful. You know, when I took on the, the project with BTK, I wanted it to be substantively different than Charles Manson blathering or Ted Bundy blathering about themselves. I wanted it to be something that mattered. Mm -hmm. And in part, that was because the victims' families got the majority of the proceeds, and they're the ones who made a decision about what kind of book this would be. Had I approached them with a tabloid kind of idea yeah. in mind, they would have said no. Right. Um, I wanted to show them that they didn't want a book about him out there at all, but they they knew they weren't going to control that. But if the one that they would be in, you know, supportive of would be the one that could be helpful mm. uh, in some way. So, so right. certainly my motivation was in part framed by the fact that I knew I was working on behalf of the victims' families. Right. With all that you've done so far, what's next for you? Well, I'm also uh, an executive producer on Murder House Flip, which is a show that came out of my Extreme Offenders course. Uh, I, I proposed it, fought through layers and layers of Hollywood bureaucracy um, to make sure it got moving. And uh, I guess if I'm proud of anything, it's being able to actually have a, sh a couple of shows now, because that's that's a very hard world to crack. But <laughs> yeah. I'm also now going into, I just recently sold a fiction series 
and it features a forensic psychologist who runs a private investigation agency that takes on difficult cases, twisty cases, because she's a suicidologist, which is also what I do. She will also accept paranormal cases because she's a ghost repellent like me. (laughs) She wants to find a a genuine case. And so mostly she goes in looking at, you know, finding ways to show that this isn't really a haunted situation. Here's what really is going on, which is what I've done for years. I wrote a book called Paranormal Forensics and bringing forensic investigation together with with friends of mine who do the paranormal stuff. And so I'm writing a whole novel series with all of that. And it kind of packs together so many of the things that I've written as nonfiction and allows me to travel and do some really cool things. So I'm really excited about that. It's a lot of fun. That's going to be awesome. Are you going to be back on a motorcycle while you're traveling? I really thought about that. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be so cool. You know, I I think gone are the days when I could live out of a backpack. That those <laughs> that's when all I owned was in my backpack, and I was happy with that. But I, you know, now I look around and see what happened to me. <laughs> I have all this stuff now: libraries of books. Um, so yeah, I think gone are those days. But also, I think I think I'm a little more cautious about taking risks. Um, yeah. I think it's it's hard to do. It's one thing to ride out west on a motorcycle. It's another thing to be on the east coast where I am because it's a lot more congested. But no, I'm still I'm actually planning a road trip soon to go visit the sites where I'm setting various things for this novel and not knowing what lies ahead, not knowing what I'll find, not knowing when I'll stop, um, and, you know, and and explore this or that. Uh, it's really kind of exciting to kind of get back to that sense of the road and just doing something that is serving my fiction. Oh my God. I, can you post pictures of that road trip? I would love to see it. I will. You had also talked about doing some work in suicidology. Can you set up what that is and tell us about that work? Yeah. A lot of people haven't heard the word suicidology. And when you add forensics into it, you're really looking at cases where you're going to do something called a psychological autopsy. And that is, you have cases that are ambiguous. It's not clear if it's natural, homicide, accident, or suicide. And a lot of psychological factors can assist in making that determination clearer, especially a suicidal frame of mind. But you can only do that if you immerse yourself in cases because people who commit suicide have done some very bizarre things. And unfortunately, when officers are first on the scene, they usually participate in something we call my side bias. That is, if I wouldn't do that, they wouldn't do that. So it's not suicide. And so we've had a lot of cases miscalled because people can't imagine, um, like there was a female engineer who who rigged up a, a chainsaw guillotine They couldn't imagine a woman doing that, let alone anybody doing that. It was a real case. So you have to know the really unusual cases. You have to know a lot about suicidal frame of mind because there's a lot of myths about suicide and culture. And you have to know when those myths are are making decisions among law enforcement when they're biasing them and distorting them and maybe a killer is going to get away. 
because you thought you said something was suicide or maybe the family isn't going to get a payout because you said it was suicide. In fact, it was an autoerotic accident. So being able to maneuver among these various manners of death because you're immersed in the cases means that you can consult on death investigations where needed. So I work pretty closely with my local coroner when he does have cases like this. Uh, we talk about it. He actually did a study with me on suicide notes and how can you tell when one is authentic or not. Oh, interesting. And in fact, when we studied it, he said, he said, well, all the notes I have are authentic. And I said, how do you know? And then he realized, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you go through all these notes and what are some of the signs that you look for in these suicide notes? Well, you have to read a lot of suicide notes because you have to see that people expect suicide notes to be certain things, but they're not usually. And we've had studies showing that, for example, first responders who find a note are expecting certain things. And when they don't get them, they discount it. Or they imagine a piece of writing found anywhere in the premises must be a suicide note. And they're often wrong about that. Um, the fact that uh, only a quarter to one third of people even leave a suicide note. Many people are now leaving them in social media or even on um, unsent texts on their phone or in odd places that you wouldn't expect mm -hmm. one word to an 800-page suicide journal. It can span so many different things. Is it signed or not signed? Is it handwritten? Is it computer-based? Uh, you know, Is it dated? If you're looking for an explanation, you probably won't find one. There are lots of suicide notes that are just instructions, or sometimes they're just rants. Or sometimes they're just pieces of lonely expression showing that I had no recourse or somebody feels trapped and no way out. So you have to understand the suicidal frame of mind, which means, again, immersing in darkness. And, and as I mentioned, darkness is not necessarily about evil. It's about areas of our minds that we haven't explored very much, if at all. And the more we do know, the more we're going to be able to assist people in that frame of mind. So I'm not really in the business of being a therapist for this, but I'm certainly in the business of being a consultant for it. That's incredible, like how much you're learning about the human mind overall. Yeah. With everything that you've learned, like what do you celebrate about life personally? I really try to do two things to be grateful. I think gratitude is the number one thing that makes you happy. Because if you're always complaining or measuring yourself against someone else or being envious or resentful, that's really a barrier. And I think if you see what you have, and especially knowing that, that you might not have it, I think gratitude is extremely important. The other thing is to notice small beauty. In other words, I walk every day, you know, at least five miles a day. I might take the same path for, you know, 10 days in a row and look for new things. It's, oh, there's a, there's a deer standing there who thinks I can't see her. I, I look for new things or I'll take different paths. I think I have to always put myself out there to feel alive. And that always refreshes me to come back and write. And even the writing is constantly about expanding, looking for new things, 
new plot devices. This morning, all of a sudden, I realized a character I had introduced early into a book I'm writing, and I just introduced him because I thought he was a really cool character, and I wanted him to, to be the person who gives things. Turns out to be very, very involved in the plot in a way I never expected, and now he's coming back in, and I love that experience where this was not at all intended, but it actually works really well. That's awesome. And I just, I love that aha moment, the discovery of things about my characters or things about anything I'm learning. I love that pop of, oh, look at that. It all comes together so beautifully. So small beauties, things that are small pieces of satisfaction or enjoyment, a sunset I watch every day, or I'll go out and watch the phases of the moon most nights those small things because too many people are looking for big grandiose experiences and they don't last long and that's one thing i can say looking back and i've had some really big experiences yeah they they're transient i didn't have a thanksgiving dinner i don't care didn't matter to me i had a bowl of coleslaw everybody else is eating huge turkey dinners and i'm just saying that as a metaphor right because in the end on friday I felt really great. (laughs) I didn't stuff myself. I learned the difference between big experiences that are few and far between and learning how to live with the daily experiences that need to be embraced and for which we need to be grateful. And I think that gives me a, a much more a plateau of satisfaction because I constantly remind myself of that. It's really the small moments that are unfortunately overlooked, but those are the ones that we should really hold on to. You asked me about a theme in my life. When I studied Kierkegaard, a a Danish philosopher and the person on whom I wrote my first book, one of the things that he talked a lot about is the joy of striving and how much greater it is than actually arriving. Mm. And even though we think we want the goal, the experience of getting there, of anticipating, of planning, of the small steps and the incremental successes along the way, I think are much more enjoyable overall than finally getting the thing. I think you're awesome, Dr. Ramsler. You're the only person that I'd want to take a motorcycle road trip with. (laughs) Not in a rainstorm still. I'm still a little bit... It was uh, awesome. Green lightning, (laughs) purple. It was amazing. I'm just happy you're alive and you're here with me. (laughs) That's what I'm happy about. But for now, I'm going to ask you to sign us off. Let me know who you are and what you represent. I'm Dr. Catherine Ramsland, and I represent the person who would risk being told no rather than miss an opportunity I might have had if I'd tried for it. Huge thanks to Dr. Ramsland for making time to speak with me and for sharing her incredible adventures and insight. Her curiosity and hunger to learn is inspiring. So check out Dr. Ramsland's work and her books. I'll have those links in the episode description. Next up is Ginger Z. She is the chief meteorologist at ABC News and reports the nation's weather for Good Morning America. She's the author of two books. Her first was called Natural Disaster, and most recently, her powerful follow-up called 
a little closer to home. There, she opens up about her struggles with depression, suicide attempts, and other incredible challenges she's had to overcome. There are different ways people grieve and deal with trauma. I'm not saying that everybody has to immediately dive in to every type of trauma because that's not even realistic or possible and probably not that healthy. What I do think is important is to, as soon as you possibly can, get it out front, give words to it. Don't miss it. And if you haven't heard yet, I am one of the speakers at Podcast Movement Evolutions. I'll be speaking on March 24th at 4.30 p.m. about creating stories that go beyond skin deep. So get your tickets and come see me. I'd love to meet you. If you like this episode, I'd love it if you could subscribe, share, and leave a review. You can do that on Apple Podcast, Podchaser, Good Pods, or wherever you're getting your pods. I have been so lucky to have amazing people come by. So check them out and download past episodes on your devices. Take me to work while you work out, because, you know, one of us should. Take me to lunch. I love lunch. Or wherever you go. I have to thank my crew, my technical director and musical composer, Nelson Pinero, always for his time and work. And love and thanks to Gracie Kong. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time, stand up and represent. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.